we enter into this section, we've, uh, we've gone past the historical part of the book of Isaiah, and now we find ourselves increasingly looking toward the Messiah, increasingly dealing with uh, scriptures and prophecies that point to, to the coming of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, and, and uh, hopefully we're going to get into at least one of those tonight as we go through Isaiah 41 and maybe 42. We'll see <clears throat> what God says. So as we take a look, Isaiah chapter 41 begins. It says, Now, keep silence before me, O coastland, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. In essence, what Isaiah is saying is, uh, Okay, let's uh, all have a quiet in the court. The judge is coming in, and we're going to reason together. We're going to talk about a few things. The Lord is going to specifically in chapter 41 be talking about his unconditional covenant with the nation of Israel. Still today, there are those who would say that the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel have been lost and to the nation of Israel and that those promises have now been transferred to the church. The church becomes spiritual Israel And Israel itself has lost the status that they at one time had with the Lord. And when we look at the scriptures, that's not what we see. We don't see it in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. We don't see it here in Isaiah. God made an everlasting covenant with the nation of Israel. This is why that's important. Because the nation of Israel were potato heads. They mess up all the time. They could not seem to get on track and stay on track. Anybody ever felt that way? Anybody ever had a walk with the Lord that was kind of up and down, victories and defeats? You find yourself in a place where you're complaining, just like the the children of Israel were? Here's the good news. God never gave up on them. So he'll never give up on you. And that's the emphasis that we see in Isaiah chapter 41. So the Lord says, listen, guys, here we go. We're going to talk about some things. We're going to talk about a few issues. So he begins with a question. The question is, who raised up one from the east? Now, in a couple of chapters, we're going to see one of the most incredible prophecies in the book of Isaiah dealing with Cyrus the king. A hundred years before Cyrus is born, Isaiah names him by name that he will be the king to lead uh, the, the Medes and the Persians, that he's going to come and he's going to be the one that's going to let the children of Israel go back to the land. And God said a hundred years before he was born what his name was and that he was going to be utilized by God. And Cyrus comes from the northeast. So we're going to see two references to him. First, who is it that raises up the one to come from the east? And who is it that raises up the one to come from the north? Probably both of them are pointing to Cyrus. But keep this in mind. There's someone else that comes from the east. Through the eastern gate in Jerusalem. He's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to, Mount of Olives is going to split in two. Living water is going to flow from that place down to the Dead Sea and make the Dead Sea live again. That is Jesus Christ. So as we take a look at this, but the question is what's important. Who is the one who raises him up? Who is the one who brings this? Whether it's Cyrus or Jesus, who brings him is the important part. Who in righteousness called him to his feet? 
Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it? And then the Lord answers, Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. The first statement of I am the first and the last. That he says, I am the Lord, the covenantal name of God, the Yahweh, the YHVH, the Tetragrammaton, whatever you want to call it, that is the name of God. And he declared himself to be the first and last. Can you think of anyone else who has said he is the first and the last? His name would be Jesus Christ. He declared himself to be the first and the last. When Jesus said, I am the first and the last, what was he saying? I am he. I am God. I am divinity. I am divine. So here's the question. Who raises up? Listen, guys. When we face the things we face in our, in our lives... Who raised it up? Who brought that forward? I mean, I used to sit at home at night and just fret over my life, over <clears throat> somewhere in a neighborhood of 17, what I considered, 17 wasted years. Just, I thought, flushed down the toilet and all this consequences that came from all the choices that I had made during that time. And I just fret over it and fret over it and worried about it and, and was bummed. I was bummed. It's like, I I really messed up, I really blew it, now what am I going to do? And then I started to look at my life in a different way. But this is the road God brought me on to get me where I am now. Whatever I had to do, I had to do. Whatever I went through was, was something that God brought into my life, that God raised up. Now, He didn't make all my choices for me, I made those. But being Almighty God... He can take my choices, good or bad, and he can funnel me right along the path, the road that God wants me to walk. Who raised up this man from the east? Who raised up the kings, presidents, those who are in charge? The Lord says, I do it. You want me to have it? If you give it to me. Do I have to give it back? Yes. Before or after I drink it? (laughs) thanks hon I keep the lid though don't spill it you're in church so that's the point God brings these things up he's going to talk to the nation of Israel and he wants them to understand all the difficulties that they're going through is something that God's brought into their life to, to equip them and to enable them to be who God's calling them to be And now he's going to focus in verses 5 through 7. He's going to look at the Gentile nations that are watching what's been going on with the nation of Israel. Now the coastland saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. What's he talking about? He says the Gentile nations washed and were afraid of what was taking place. And they went right back to building their altars. 
to building their altars. But with their altars, they put tods on them so that they wouldn't totter. Their, their weeble wobbles. They didn't want them to fall over. Yet these are the things that they put their trust in. Remember the Philistines. They had a god named Dagon. Dagon was their god. And when they had captured the Ark of the Covenant, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the Temple of Dagon. You remember what happened to Dagon? The next morning they went out, Dagon's on his face in front of the ark. And they're like, hmm, that's weird. They stand Dagon back up. They go out there, Dagon's on his face again in front of the altar. They stand Dagon back up. The next day they go out there, Dagon's busted in pieces. They're no standing him up. And they decided to send the ark back to Israel. Over and over and over again in the Gentile nation's history... God was seen to be true and real, but they would still fall back on what they knew. And what they knew was building idols, false gods, false systems of worship. But then as he thinks about those guys, he's going to look back to Israel, look in verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant. Now, keep that in mind. That's going to come up again later. You, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. I love it when God does this. He says, you, Israel, are my servant. Now, Israel means governed by God. Israel was the name of Jacob when he finally started getting it right and the Lord changed his name. Remember? From Jacob, he changed it to Israel, which means governed by God. And throughout Jacob's life, you see Jacob going to go back and forth from being Jacob to being Israel. Sometimes Jacob's doing good. God calls him Israel. Sometimes Jacob's doing bad. God calls him Jacob. We see this dual nature within Jacob. Don't we experience the same thing? The Bible calls it the battle between the spirit and the flesh. That our, our flesh is weak, but our spirit is what we want to press into. It's what we want to encourage in our life, to walk in the spirit, right? To walk in the spirit is to walk like Israel. Well, here God says, Israel's my servant, but he says, Jacob I have chosen. I chose you before the foundation of the world. That's what the book of Ephesians tells us. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God picked you to be on his team. God, knowing by his foreknowledge, predestined that you would become the, the sons of God, being adopted into God's family. He laid out that choice, knowing that you would receive the choice. He welcomes you into the family. What that means is before you had ever done anything, before you had ever made a right step, done a good thing, God already had you. He already chose you, even when he knew you were Jacob, the liar. Jacob, the cheat. Jacob, walking in his flesh. God said, I chose you. I chose you. That concept, by the way, fries my noodle. Fries my noodle because God's word teaches very clearly that there is human responsibility. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Bible also clearly says that you are chosen from the foundation of the world. Which is it? Both at the same time. How? That's why he's God. And we're not. I've heard it explained that when we walk through the, the, one of the gates in heaven, we look up, it could, it could say on one side, whosoever will, and as you pass through, you turn around and look again, and it'll say, chosen from the foundations of the earth. 
Both are true at the same time. Both are true. There is human responsibility and God's sovereignty working together. And we see it often in verses side by side. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. We see God moving and working like this with his nation. And then he says this, look, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Abraham was called the friend of God. The Bible tells us in the New Testament there is such a thing between believers called the fellowship of suffering. And that the fellowship of suffering binds souls together. You see it happen in a practical sense on a battlefield. Guys who have served in battle, whether it's in Vietnam, Desert Storm, wherever they fought together, they are like a band of brothers. They are tight. They're tight. The fellowship of suffering. And then we, we are introduced to Abraham and we, we see Abraham being called to do something that no other man was ever called to do. He was called by God to take your son, your son whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. And the Bible tells Abraham didn't hesitate. He didn't stop and think about it. He was obedient immediately. He got up. He brought his son. He grabbed the wood. He got the fire. He brought his servants. And he took him to the mountain that God would show him. Mount Moriah. Today, the Temple Mount is on Mount Moriah. In uh, about a year and a half or... No, about two, I don't know how long. A year from January, we're going to take a trip to Israel. January or February. And when we take that trip to Israel, we're going to go on Mount Moriah. We're going to go up on the Temple Mount and see the temple. And from the temple, you're going to look to the top of Mount Moriah. And you'll see something. It's a skull. The same place where Abraham offered his son on the top of Mount Moriah, is the place where Jesus Christ would be offered by his father. And we see Abraham as he's obedient in doing this. Now God doesn't have him kill his son. He stops him as he's bringing the knife down. But he says, now I know what? You love me. Now I know you love me. And what did Abraham know? Now Abraham knew the depth of his love for God as well. And from that moment, we see Abraham called the friend of God. Because he, unlike many other fathers, would understand what it is to offer your son. And so he was the friend, the friend of God, obedient to the things that God had called him. So here he's looking at Israel. He says, you're Israel governed by God. You're Jacob, the liars that I have chosen. The descendants of Abraham, my friend, the one who offered his, his child in obedience to me. You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Do you see what it said? And said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not cast you away. Over and over again in the scriptures, we'll read that God is not finished with Israel. He's not done. There's still a plan. God is still going to fulfill every promise he ever gave them. He's still going to fulfill it. He's still going to keep his promises to them. And then he says in 
in verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Man, if there's ever a verse to hang on your fridge, there it is. I mean, that's the one. For all the things that life's going to bring, for all the hassles, for all the troubles, for all the struggles, what's he say? Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now he goes on. Behold, all those who were incensed against you, all those enemies of Israel, behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. And they shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. And you will seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. One of the things you find when, when we get a chance to go to Israel is you're going to hear over and over again about the dramatic deliverances that God's had on the nation of Israel in current history since 1948. You're going to have a chance, probably the last few times we went, the, the guides we had served in the, in the war during uh, the war in 1967, the, the Six-Day War, they were there for Yom Kippur. I mean, they saw the things, the things that nobody can explain. When the, when the Yom Kippur War came, Israel was taken by such surprise that they could have washed them into the sea. But for some reason, they all stopped. And Israel regrouped and kicked them out. God said, all these people who come against you will come to nothing. One of the things I consider when I'm looking at a political candidate, those who are going to rule our country, is where their stance is with Israel. Where do they stand with Israel? God says that, that he wants us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God says that's his city. It's, it's being on lease or rented to the nation of Israel. But he says it's his. And when we look at that in the scripture, he calls us to pray for it. And he says, hey, this is my special place. Let me tell you, when you come into Israel, you walk into Jerusalem, it's not like any place on earth. You're going to look at it and say, what in the world are people fighting for? Who cares? It's a rock. That's it. It's a little city. It's a little place in a big world. Yet war after war after war is fought in the city of peace, Jerusalem. Why? Because it's God's. It's God's and the enemy don't want it to be that way. So when I look at those people who are going to lead our country, I want to see where their stance is with Israel. Because the Lord says, if you're against Israel, you'll come to nothing. So being against Israel is a bad place to be. Guess where we are today? Yeah, shocking, huh? Shocking. For the first time in my memory, we're, we have taken a pretty solid stance against the nation of Israel. Now listen to this in verse 13. <clears throat> he says, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. So the Lord saying to the nation, Hey, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm going to hold your right hand. I'm going to take care of you. What I have promised you is going to take place. 
And then while you're looking at that, I love this because people start thinking. I used to think that that God was going to pour out blessing on me because I did good things. And the more good things I did, the more blessing that I would receive. The more blessing I received, man, I was on track. You know, I I was doing good things. But when we look here in Isaiah, what does he say? He says, I'm going to be there. I'm going to uphold your right hand. Fear not, for I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. So fear not, you worm Jacob. I'm with you. You see, the relationship that we have with God's never been based on performance. It never has. The relationship that we have with God... Is, best on, is based on relationship. It's, it's personal, not performance. It's being as close to Jesus Christ as we can be. The great news about that is, the more we press into the Lord, what's the Bible say? Don't be transformed into the image of this world, or don't be conformed into the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That we become like Jesus Uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Let the mind of Christ be in you. That we, as we stay near Him, you know you become like the people you hang out with, right? You become like, if you're hanging out with with Jesus, who are you going to become like? You're going to be like Him. You're going to be like Him. But it's not on performance. It's all based on love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there's no greater phrase for being away from God than that phrase, ungodly, by the way. That He died, gave Himself for the ungodly before we took one step. It's not performance-based, but I love the fact that He says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I will help you. I'm going to help you guys. I, you know, even though you're not doing so hot. And Israel, folks, on Wednesday night, we're studying through the book of Numbers. It's depressing. It's depressing how often they mess up. How many horrible mistakes they make. And, and they be so close and yet so far away. And, and sometimes I think, how can those people be so dumb? And, and maybe some of them are in heaven looking at me thinking, how could he be so stupid? Why doesn't he just listen to what God's word says and and follow through with what God's calling him to do? I mean, we all have our time in the wilderness. And it's important that we know that God was with them every step of the way. Manna never stopped for 40 years in the wilderness. God brought his judgment on a nation of Israel that didn't have the faith and belief to enter into the promised land. But he never stopped manna. He never stopped giving them water. Their shoes never wore out. God supernaturally was with them every day of the 40 years in the wilderness. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now they might have been walking around in the wilderness thinking, oh man, God's left us. But it wasn't true. Every morning they gathered what? Their daily bread. Right? All pictures of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. Every day we wake up in the morning and we gather our daily bread. The Lord watches over us, keeps us, carries us through. Even if we don't feel like we see Him, sense Him, or, or, or can see Him working among us, it doesn't mean that God's not there, that He's not with us, that He's not providing for us. 
And ultimately, what would his provision be for them? Their Redeemer. Mashiach Nagid, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Promised Messiah. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. And you will thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will carry them away and the whirlwind will scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The the deliverance, looking forward to the deliverance of the Messiah. Listen, Jesus Christ will return in the flesh and he will rule and reign as king. A thousand years. No question. The word of God. Very clear. He is coming back in the flesh. And he will sit on the throne of David. Just like he promised Israel that he would do. He'll be their king. And when he's their king. We're going to see these things taking place. As the nation of Israel rises to the place. Where, where God always wanted to take them in the first place. And the nations alongside able to see. Verse 17, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress and the pine and the box tree together. One of the most incredible things about getting to go to Israel is getting to see the desert bloom. The promises that God said that the nation of Israel would bloom again. When they were destroyed roughly in 70 AD, I mean, they were plowed under. It was desert. It was nothing left. And then for years and years and years, people were fighting, blowing up each other, crusades going on. We have the Ottoman Turk Empire coming in. All these things going on through Israel. At one time, the Ottoman Turks decided that they would tax people based on the amount of trees they had. So they went out and cut down all their trees. The next thing you know, Israel is just a barren desert. There's nothing there. 1948, when they allowed the, the, the first... Uh, Jewish settlers into Israel to repopulate or, or to, to enter into that part of the land. First, nobody wanted it. Nobody was waiting there that day saying, oh, come on, give it to us. It was, it was just a desert. What wasn't desert was swamp. It was unusable. But the, the Jewish people came in, touched, I think, by the hand of God, guided in His wisdom. The desert blooms today. I mean, it's alive. Trees everywhere. It's like, in some places of Israel, it's like walking through Boise National Forest and seeing uh, just trees everywhere. Cricks, rivers, streams all over the place. You wouldn't even imagine. You're thinking, I'm thinking, you know, the desert, walking, poof, dirt, flying every step I take. Well, some's like that. But the majority of it, it's blooming. It's amazing. It's amazing to see. And here the Lord's saying, listen, they're going to come in that land and they're going to be thirsty and there's no water, but, but I'm going to make the desert bloom. God brought the children of Israel to Israel for a reason. There is only two freshwater sources in Israel. Now, we can't even fathom that in the United States. Only two? Only two. The Sea of Galilee, which is a lake, 
and the Jordan River. That's it. No other fresh water sources. So when there's a drought, it is a little bit spooky. The number one concern that they have in the nation of Israel is not terrorism. It's drought. You think if they called up their friends around them and said, hey, can we have some water? They'd say, okay. No. What's God say? I'm going to give you the water. I remember when I went to Israel, a friend of mine and I were, were sitting outside on the, on the Sea of Galilee, had our guitar, and, and he had a djembe, and we were just playing. You know, there was nobody around us when we started, but it turns out later on that night it was a, like a street fair, and people started coming. I felt kind of cheap because we're doing praise and worship, and they're throwing shekels in my guitar case. But I, I gave them to the Lord, and what are you going to do with a shekel? I don't know. But anyhow, we were sitting there praising the Lord, and all these kids started coming to us. And it was kind of cool, because in Israel, you got like, like guys that are in the army, and, and dudes that have dreadlocks almost all the way down to their ankles. And in, in, in America, in my experience, those two groups don't go together. You didn't usually see Marines hanging out with dudes with dreadlocks. It just, they were opposing views. It's not that way in Israel. Because everybody wants to kill them. So they kind of band together. And I remember them coming to us and they'd ask, everybody would ask the same question. Why did you come? Why do you come here? So, oh man, this is, I mean, this is truly God's country. I mean, this is, this is the, the land that, that God owns and he's given to the nation of Israel. And we just come to, to see and to go to the places where those incredible miracles took place and the in the wilderness, and we're talking about it, and he goes, how can you say that we're God's chosen people? I mean, look at our history. Look at all the horrible things that have happened to us. I mean, how could we be God's chosen? So I told him, I shared with him a little bit about my testimony, and I laid out for him, listen, guys, the things that you go through, the struggles that you face, as, as, is not indicative of whether or not you're God's chosen. It, it shows that because you have God's favor, the enemies of God are going to be raising up against you. Try to wipe out the nation, but they've never been able to. I said, you, you, you didn't have a homeland for 2,000 years, yet you retained your, your language. How does that happen? 2,000 years, you know. But still, they retain their language. They come into the land. And we're talking about it. And I said, look, you're going to have a choice. You know, we talked about the most important thing, the, the thing they were worried about the most, the drought. And I said, listen, they happened to be in a drought at that time. The, the, the Sea of Galilee was at real low levels. And they were needing rain. And, and God put them in Israel so they would have to look to him to supply the water. God's the one who gives the water. Living water. You've heard that phrase, right? Living water literally is water from God. Rain, running water, water in a well, whatever it is, is water that comes from the Lord. And I told him, hey, I don't know. It's going to rain, I guarantee you. You're not going to perish for drought. And I said, when it rains, you're going to be faced with two choices. You can look up to the heavens and thank the clouds. Or you can thank the God who said, I'll give you the water that you need. And we kind of went our separate ways. It was a, was a neat time we spent with the guys. And the next morning we got on the bus, clouds rolled in, and it rained cats and dogs. And I remember telling my buddy that we were playing with, I said, man, I wish I could be where those kids are today. What are they going to do? 
They're going to look up and praise a God that provides or thank the clouds. Sure is lucky that those clouds were there. Listen, the scripture goes on and tells us, as the Lord lays these things out, then they will see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. So pointing again to those who don't believe, to those who don't have faith, well, make your case. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. What's the Lord say? The test of whether or not these guys are true, tell me what's going to happen before it happens. That's what God says. Tell me what's going to happen before it happens. There are over 300 prophecies dealing specifically with the Messiah, with Jesus Christ. Of those 300 prophecies, eight are beyond his control. Like he can't choose where he's going to be born or where they're going to bury him. He's not going to be able to choose many of those things. Eight things he will not be able to deal with. He will not be able to make happen if he's trying to make prophecies happen in his life. The odds of those eight prophecies occurring on one person is the same as covering the state of Texas three feet deep with silver dollars, painting one silver dollar red, blindfolding someone, bringing them to the border of Texas, and telling them to walk through the three feet deep silver dollars. Somewhere they can walk as long as they want. Somewhere along the journey they can stoop down one time and only once. And they must pick up the one silver dollar that's colored red. That's the odds of one man fulfilling eight. Jesus fulfilled 300. The Bible is a third prophecy. God, we're going to see in a couple chapters, names a man by name a hundred years before he's born. Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 9 gives a mathematical prophecy that tells the day when Jesus Christ is going to enter into Jerusalem. Over and over and over again. Those are just the dramatic ones. That doesn't count the ones that that are short, like only 50 years ahead of, of time or 20 years ahead of time. Throughout the scripture, throughout the scripture, Over a third of the Bible is prophecy. It sets it apart. The Lord says, you will know who I am because I will tell you the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you how it's all going to work out. So we come together on Sunday nights and we we study the the Old Testament prophets and we get a look at the prophecies and the words that God speaks. He says, hey, if you guys think you got something, then come on. Tell me the end from the beginning. But let's measure apples and apples. They say Nostradamus missed Hitler's name by one letter. Uh, God didn't miss Cyrus's name by any. Not a one. He didn't miss the day in which the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem by one day. The prophecies in the scripture that are given are incredible, amazing, mind-blowing as we go through and as we have an opportunity to take a look at them. So here the Lord says, hey, show me the things that are to come hereafter in verse 23. That we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil. That we may be dismayed and see it together. For indeed you are nothing. 
Your work is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. Talking about the idols, false worship. They can't do it. Listen, God had one simple rule for prophecy. You know what it is? You can never be wrong. If you're wrong, you're not a prophet. So being off by one letter means you're not a prophet. Being close but not quite there, you're not a prophet. The other test was if you're right and you lead people to worship other gods, you're not a prophet. You're not a prophet. Here the Lord lays out, hey, you're nothing and those who choose you are an abomination. I have raised up one from the north. Again, now he's focused on Cyrus. I have raised up one from the north and he shall come from the rising of the sun. And he shall call on my name. And he shall come against princes as though mortar, as a potter treads a clay. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? In former times that we may say, he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The Lord says, here, I'll give you one. Cyrus is coming from the north. And in a couple chapters, he'll name him by name. And he's going to tell him about the conquest that he's going to have, that Cyrus is his servant, a servant of God, that he's going to fulfill God's plan. And that's, in fact, what we see him doing. He goes on now and says in, uh, in verse 27, The first time I said to Zion, Look, there you are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. But listen, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. For I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor will he be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. The Lord is looking at first those false prophets and those false idols. And he's talking about here, I'll give you a prophecy that you're going to see fulfilled, which he's going to develop in a couple of chapters. And then he compares him with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. A smoking flax he won't put out. You ever felt like you were just kind of sputtering, not quite burning? It says a smoking flax he won't put out. You ever felt like you're bent over, you couldn't stand anymore, a bruised reed, bent over, unable to stand on its own, he won't break. He, the scripture lays out for us, will never be discouraged. You're not going to be able to to discourage him. He's not going to be on the loud horn, on the corner, screaming what the word of God says. He says... He will not cause his voice to be heard in the street. I mean, think about it. Jesus, who did all the things that Jesus did, had to be identified by a kiss. 
Because the soldiers didn't know who he was, what he looked like. He fit so well in among people that he didn't stick out. He didn't cause attention to be brought onto him. He didn't draw attention to himself. He pointed the way to the Father. He pointed the way to him. He gives us the way that we will go. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. Jesus came to the River Jordan. And there the River Jordan was John the Baptist. Now Jesus had the Holy Spirit in him from birth. He was was brought about by a work of the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting here in Isaiah, the same phrase used in the Greek is the word epi. It says here in Isaiah that the Holy Spirit came upon him. When Jesus stepped down in in obedience with John the Baptist and was baptized there in the River Jordan, the scripture declares to us that the Lord said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended, how? Upon him. In the form of a dove. What happened in that moment? He was empowered. He was filled to overflowing. He was, as Ephesians puts it, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit in him, now the Holy Spirit upon him. But what are you talking about, Jackie? He was God. Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2, uh, 5 through 8 tells us that he kenosis himself. He emptied himself. He didn't cease to be God, but he laid aside his power and his rights. And he performed everything that he did through the power of the Spirit and by obedience to the Father. That's why he's such an example for us. That's why Jesus could say to us, the things you've seen me do, you can do. Because the same Spirit that worked in him is working in us. Well, as we take a look at, at Isaiah, we're going we're gonna to conclude chapter 42. Uh, next time, we'll get a little bit more into that first section of Scripture that we read. But as we look at what Isaiah's laying out for, for the nation of Israel, that they're his forever, that he's going to watch over them, that he's going to keep them, that he's going to care for them, the Scriptures lay out for us that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. It applies. All the promises of God apply. That he'll be with us. That he'll watch over us. Every Sunday night when we come to about this time, we just set aside the the end of the service just to take a moment to call upon the name of the Lord. The scripture lays out for us, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, God wants to do a work in us and through us. But in order to do it, we have to be willing to come before him in obedience, to pray, to make our requests known. So maybe I can get Corey to kill the lights because it looks like um, Betty's gone. But when we, when we pray, we're just going to set aside that time. We'll end when we end. If you've got to bail before we're done, God bless you. You know, go in peace. Have a great week. But let's just set aside this time to seek his face, to to look for what God wants to do. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? And we have so much to pray about, don't we? 
So many people hurting, sick, struggling. People you know that I don't know. This is an opportunity for us to lift them up. So I'll start us off and we'll pray and and I'll wrap us up somewhere down the line someplace. But I just want to encourage you to, to allow that the Holy Spirit to be upon you, to anoint you, to touch you, to lift up your requests and make them known to the Lord, to just set aside this time to seek His face, just like, you know, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. And uh, we'll be still before the Lord and see what He'll do for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word, God, and all that You bring and show us. Father, we ask, Lord God, that as we come before You this evening, as we just are still, and as we stand before You knowing that You are God, Lord, we ask that You would move in a mighty way.